بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والحمد لله رب العالمين وسبحان الله أؤمن به واستعينه واستهديه واستجيره واستنصره فإنه من هدي الله من هدى الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وأن محمدا عبده ورسوله يا رب نتوكل عليك وأعوذ بك أن أضل أو أضل أو أزل أو أزل أو أظلم أو أظلم أو أجهل أو استج أو أستجهل وأقول يا نور السماوات والأرض اللهم اجعل في قلبي نور وفي لساني نور وفي بصري نور وفي أهلي نور وفي بيتي نور وفي كلامي نور اللهم أعظم لي نورا وصلي وسلم وبارك على محمد وعلى آله وأصحابه ومن اتوه بإحسان إلى يوم الدين So much of our tradition is full of trajectories, propensities, potentialities. Our tradition and especially the tradition of the Prophet and the tradition of his family and the tradition of the companions. Like all history, like all history, like everything that has been reported to us about the past, is complex. History by its very nature is a complicated picture. History is never sanitized, never unidimensional, never flat. Anyone that claims that history is unidimensional or that it presents a clear and crisp picture is either ill-informed 
or lying. Because life itself is complicated. Because we often, as human beings, cannot agree, cannot agree about what transpires and what happens in our present moment. Whenever something unfolds in our present, we often have competing narratives, different points of view, different competing interests. So you can imagine if this is the situation with the present, you can imagine what the situation would be with the past. History is always complicated. And history is always multidimensional. This puts a great deal of responsibility upon us who live in the present moment. A great deal of, of responsibility to approach history with the proper interpretive tools and the proper instrumentalities and the proper methodology so that we can, to the extent possible, interpret and understand what took place in the past. It is nothing short of a moral responsibility. Remember that often the most important thing when we approach history as it is when we approach the present, is what is the question that you articulate, formulate, and apply? What is the question is often far more important than the answer that comes forward. <clears throat> Posing the right question, as it is in the present, is extremely important, especially when we approach the past. Hardly a day goes by when I do not receive email messages from people that, for the most part, I don't know, 
And they're always asking questions about the past. They're always asking questions about the Prophet and the legacy of his companions. And just to demonstrate to you how important the question is, just by reading the question that is sent to me, I can immediately tell what are the influences and pressures and biases that plague the person asking the question. Just by reading the question, I can tell whether this person who's writing me has been influenced by Islamophobes, have been influenced by apologetics, has been influenced by Salafi Wahhabi Islam, has been influenced by Sufi Islam, has been influenced by modern political issues. Just reading the question itself, I can tell a great deal about the person writing me. Posing the right question is an education. It is a reflection of the extent to your knowledge. It's a reflection of your own method, ethical being. It's a reflection of your moral universe. It is a reflection of your ignorance or your knowledge. Imagine the type of questions that we ask in our present moment and how important they are. And then perhaps you can start to understand how important are the questions that we pose to the past. If in the present moment you have a son and daughter and the questions that always come to your mind is who is my daughter meeting behind my, my back? Who is she talking to that is an unsavory influence? What is she up to? What shenanigans is she making up? So that all of the questions that you direct at your daughter are questions that betray your lack of belief in your daughter. That your daughter stands accused and suspect in your eyes. Just the questions that you might have about your daughter and that you direct at your daughter from your daughter's perspective, 
are far more important than any answers she can possibly give you. And in fact, in fact, there might be no set of answers that your daughter could give you that will ever satisfy you. Because the problem is not in your daughter. The problem is in your heart and in your intellect. Imagine if you are married to someone and the questions that you direct at your wife, who did you meet? Who did you talk to? Are you really telling me the truth? Questions can destroy a life and can rehabilitate a life and preserve and protect a life. Questions are instrumentalities and reflections of power, but they are also instrumentalities and reflection of human weakness and human distrust and human anxiety and human ignorance. The questions that we pose about our past and to our past are critically important. So people who write me every day just by reading the question, as I said, I can tell the influences upon them. And quite often, there is no point to responding to a question. Because just from the question, I can tell that this person is not really searching for an objective, scholarly, nuanced response to anything, that, the, that what this person suffers from is an ailment inside their heart and inside their intellect. And that no answer would satisfy or placate this is critically important because it is the questions that we directed at our tradition that gave us that gave us the Islam that we practice today. The questions that we directed at our tradition are what gave us Islam that we practice today. So, let me take you through a few examples.
to better understand what I'm talking about. The Prophet once it is reported that the Prophet told Ali bin Abi Talib When Ali bin Abi Talib, the great companion and the cousin of the Prophet asked the Prophet, how would you describe yourself? And the following was the response that the Prophet is reported to have given. المعرفة رأس مالي والعقل أصل ديني والحب أساسي والشوق مركبي وذكر الله أنيسي والثقة كنزي والحزن رفيقي والعلم سلاحي والصبر ردائي والرضا غنيمتي والعجز فخري والزهد حرفتي واليقين قوتي والصدق شفيعي والطاعة حسبي والجهاد خلقي وقرة عيني في الصلاة. But the Prophet answered. It's profound and deserves a lot of reflection. The anchor of my life, the capital that defines my life is ilm, is knowledge. And reason, and reason is the foundation of my religion. And what are the premises of what I am? The Prophet says, asasi," And my foundational being is based on love. And what moves me is passion. And dhikr, dhikr is my companion. And my weapon in life is ilm, is knowledge. And my armor in existence is patience. And Zohd, I'm, I'm skipping intentionally quite a few of them because we don't have the time to translate everything. Uh, 
But with Zuhud, abstention, abstention and rejecting worldly goods is my path, Hilfati, is the way that I navigate life on earth. And belief and certitude in Allah is my strength. And truthfulness, truthfulness is the agent that makes me in good standing with the Lord. And jihad to struggle in the way of, of Allah khuluqi that's the foundation of my character. And the kernel of my life my real pleasure in existence is in prayer. Notice here all the elements that have been brought together. Reason is the foundation. Knowledge, study, understanding, love, Love is also foundational. Washawq Merkabi passion was anisi and dhikr is foundational. Walhuzn melancholy is part of the Prophet's character. Well, sabr, patience, and zuhd, abstention from worldly goods, was sitq, truthfulness, well, this is ta'atillah. Obedience to God, hasbi, is also foundational. And jihad is also foundational. Struggling in the path of the Lord. And the kernel, the center of life, Prophet's life, is in prayer. Now, pause here and ask yourself. Many of those who are hearing me today have been Muslims a good part of their life, if not all their life. And I am sure that the vast majority of Muslims have never heard this hadith. I can't tell you the number of times I've entered into 
entirely pointless debates with ignorant human beings who tell me things like, there's no reason in Islam. There's no place for reason in Islam. Or there's no place for love in Islam. Or cannot even come close to the type of ethical vision that presented by the Prophet in responding to Ali radiallahu an in one paragraph, an entire philosophy of existence is propounded. An entire philosophy of existence is explained in one paragraph. You might have been Muslim for most of your life or all your life, but the vast majority of you have never heard this riwayah. Have never heard, but even worse, have never read a real study by modern Muslims on the implications of such a profound statement. A statement that combines reason, knowledge, love, patience, jihad, zuhd, salah, sabr, all in a single integrated vision. I assure you, if this statement would have been expressed by Thomas Aquinas in Christianity today, you would find volumes of academic writings writing about the moral vision of Thomas Aquinas. I assure you, if this same statement was expounded by a famous Jewish theologian like Maimonides of your Joseph Caro, today you would have found numerous academic and scholarly commentaries on the moral vision of Maimonides or Joseph Caro. It is what type of question that we pose to the tradition that already predetermined our answer. If you approach the tradition assuming that love has only a marginal place to play and that what Islam is about is really obedience. That will predetermine your response. If you approach the tradition already assuming that reason has no place, that will already predetermine your response. Posing and learning to pose the right question is always as critical as the type of answer that you might get. Indeed, 
Our tradition is full, is a treasure trove of knowledge and wisdom. But it takes a great deal of education and moral fortitude to pose the right type of questions to that tradition. So that you can have the possibility of getting the right type of answers. Consider There's so much that I can share with you. But consider some other examples that, again, unlock entire possibilities of moral development and ethical fortitude. fortitude. One of the important events and days of Islamic history is it's 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 commonly reported in the in the tradition as yawm al-qirad anyway however to simplify things towards the last couple of years of the Prophet's life, one of the tribes in Arabia had started organizing a campaign to invade Medina. <clears throat> and as usual, the Prophet, dealt with these hostile overtures by trying to preempt the attack because the Prophet knew that from the experience of the Battle of the Khandaq that if Muslims are forced to fight a defensive battle from Medina, it would have very destructive influence on the inhabitants of Medina. And what the Prophet ﷺ would often do is that you would organize a military unit that would go meet the enemy outside the borders of Medina rather than defend in Medina or close to Medina. So 
in one of these days and in one of these situations, there is one such military campaign and the enemies are routed and defeated and as was the practice of people at the time of the Prophet and before the Prophet, it was in practice for a very long time in human history, that if the enemy brings with them to battle women and children and the enemy is routed or defeated, you don't kill the women or children but you capture them. And as was the practice of the laws of war at the time when you capture enemies and women and children brought to battle by the enemy, brought to battle, then you must hold on to them for a grace period of time so to give an opportunity to their people to ransom them, in other words, to buy their freedom by paying a fidya or a ransom. If their people do not do that, at the end of that time period, these captives become slaves and are held as slaves. That was the law of war or the law of nations back then. And, uh, and some other day I will talk about the laws of slavery and, and all that. Unfortunately, I was planning to do it today, but I started getting sick and couldn't get the type of material that I would need to, to talk about slavery put together. Alhamdulillah. Anyway, so among the women who fell captive was a woman known as Sufana bint Hatim al-Ta'i. When Sufana is brought as a prisoner of war, she hasn't become a, a, cap, a slave yet because the ransom period had not expired. But she is initially brought to the head of the uh, commander of Muslim forces. She says that she, will, she refuses, she will not become a Muslim, and she wants to wait until her family or her tribe ransom her. The grace period passes and she's not ransomed by anyone. At that point, Sufana requests that she meets the Prophet Sufana tells the commander of Muslim forces, I want to meet your Prophet. 
Now, for the practices of people at that time, for a prisoner of war to say, I want to meet your commander in charge, imagine if a captive of war in Afghanistan, someone like from fighting with the Taliban, says, I want to meet the American president. It is impossible to think of. For a captive war, for instance, by, by the Romans to, to say, I want to meet your emperor. But the Prophet was known never to turn anyone down that wants to meet with him. So already it's an odd situation. And the Prophet meets with Sufana. And Sufana says the following, Ya Muhammad, she didn't say Ya Rasulullah, she said Ya Muhammad, calling him by his first name. أَرَأَيْتَ أَنْ تُخَلِّي عَنَّا وَلَا تُشَمِّتْ بِنَا أَحْيَاءُ الْعَرَبِ فَإِنِّي إِبْنَةُ سَيِّدْ قَوْمِي وَإِنِّي وإن أبي كان يحمي الزمار ويفك العاني ويشبع الجائع ويكس العاري ويقري الضيف ويطعم ويفشي السلام ولم يرد طلب حاجة قط أنا ابنة حاتم الطائي فقال لها النبي عليه الصلاة والسلام هذه صفات المؤمنين خلوا عنها فإن أباها كان يحب مكارم الأخلاق وإن الله يحب مكارم الأخلاق So Sufana tells the Prophet والسلام, upon meeting him she knows she's not been ransomed but she says let me go. Let me go and don't embarrass me or cause me to be shamed and embarrassed among the Arabs. If you asked about my father, my father was a very generous man. My father helped people in need. My father fed the hungry. My father helped people who needed clothes. My father was a man who greeted all. Yufshi salam, meaning just you, you greet everyone that you meet. My father was a man of dignity and honor. And I am his daughter. The Prophet's response at this point is remarkable. He says, the ethics of your father, although her father died a kafir, died in a non-Muslim. The ethics of your father are the ethics of true Muslims, true believers. And then the Prophet turns to his people and he says, let her go. 
because she is the daughter of a man of high character. And Allah loves people of high character, or Allah loves moral character. Makarim al-akhlaq, not people of high character, but rather loves virtuous ethics in and of themselves. A narrative like that deserves an enormous amount of pause. It deserves pause because Muslims followed the laws of war that existed at their time. They followed the rules and procedures. But following the rules and procedures of the laws of their time didn't prevent them from exceeding these laws by offering moral and ethical contributions that were ahead of the laws of their time. The laws of your time says captive, ransom, enslavement. What is the change here? What is the value added here? The value added is that virtuous ethics could be enough to earn your release without a ransom. And that virtuous ethics could bond a Muslim and non-Muslim because we Muslims recognize virtuous ethics. Now, when this woman is released, she was not a Muslim. She later on converts to Islam. She takes her shahada. After she's released, when she becomes a, full, a, a, a free, autonomous human being, at that point she decides to become Muslim. But that's not central to understanding and reflecting upon this narrative. We know from other situations that if prisoners of war taught Muslims to read and write, they were released without ransom. We know from other situations that if prisoners of war helped teach Muslims technology and technological advancement, like Sana'at al-Dabbabat, what was known as the Dabbaba, the siege instrument, a, a tank, but not our modern day tank. They were, they were tanks that in that day and age would help lay, lay siege to a fortress. That earned their release if they taught Muslims that technology because Muslims did not know have the technology of the Dabbaba or these tanks of, pre of, of the medieval age. I am 
certain that the vast majority of Muslims who are listening to me have never heard of this incident with Sufana and the Prophet and they might have heard part of that tradition quoted about makarim al-akhlaq, about good moral character. But they don't know where it comes from and what was the occasion. It is the question that you pose to the tradition. I will give you one final example before I close the first khutbah. And it's a related, connected example in many ways. When Sufana is released, she tells the Prophet I want to go back to my family. And the Prophet tells her, well, you're free to do so, but please do not travel alone your family right now is in Arabia, and it was a, a anyway. We, we, but if you leave now, you'll be traveling alone in the desert. So wait until someone can travel with you for your own safety. Sufana says, that's fine, I'm going to wait. And she hangs around Medina. And that proves to be quite instrumental in her conversion to Islam. But anyway, eventually, a traveling caravan comes around. And Sufana, instead of traveling back to where her mother and father are in Arabia, she decides she, she wants to travel to where her brother is in Hashem, in Syria. So she goes with a caravan and she, went, she goes to meet her brother in Hashem. Her brother at that point is not a Muslim and Sufana has grown closer to Islam and at some point, we're not sure whether before she starts her travel to Shem or during her travel, she converts to Islam. But she's very influenced by the moral example that she witnessed in Medina. And that the people of Medina lived moral virtue, didn't just preach moral virtue. That the type of moral characteristics that her, her father taught her were actually lived and practiced in Medina. So Sufana eventually arrives in Hashem, meets with her brother, but she knows that if she tells her brother that she's a Muslim, he is going to go into a flying rage and their whole relationship is ruined. So she hides the fact that she's a Muslim.
Instead, she tells her brother, his, her brother's name was Adi. She tells her brother Adi, when I was held captive to the Muslim armies, I saw what I never expected to see. What did you see, sister? I saw people who lived virtue, didn't just talk about virtue. They were a truthful people, a people of great dignity and honor, a people of great generosity, a people who greeted each other consistently and who functioned as a unit. And I met their prophet. And I met a person, a man of true virtue that would have been worthy of a greatest Arab tribal chief if he wanted to be a tribal chief. Her brother doesn't like what he hears. He says, how can you say that about Muhammad? Don't you know that I hate the man? I, Oday, I'm a man of great eloquence, and I am a great poet, and I have written composed poetry attacking Muslims and attacking the Prophet. Haven't you heard this poem and that poem of mine? Sufana says, well, if great man like yourself would not speak about a people, unless he gives himself a chance to learn the truth about them, why don't you meet their Prophet and then either decide to attack him or not to attack him, but at least then your poetry will be truthful because it is based on real knowledge, not gossip. Adi thinks that this is reasonable and is very confident of himself. And he says, okay, well, when you travel back to meet your mother and father, I will travel back with you from Sham. I'll be dropped off at Medina. In other words, the caravan goes and stops transit. It could stop transit in Mecca, but it actually stopped transit in Mecca, but then you have to travel from Mecca to Medina. So the caravan is going to stop transit in Mecca anyway. I'll drop, uh, you will continue on in the journey to meet your mother and father, and I will then go to Medina and meet this man. These were the virtues and characteristics of these Arabs. They were, they, they had certain basic elementary ethics of character that made them 
ideal fertile soil for Islam. So Adi meets the Prophet ﷺ eventually. And the meeting is quite remarkable for what Adi reports about his experience with the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ. So, first, Adi bin Hatim is amazed at how easy it was to request an audience with the Prophet ﷺ and to get an audience. Adi, who lived in Syria, is accustomed to kings and queens and all the fanfare that kings have around them and that it is impossible to get a meeting with a king if you were not a nobleman or the richest of the rich. But the first thing that strikes Adi is that upon arriving in Medina, when he requests an audience with the Prophet, he's granted it. And in fact, he's told, oh, he's over there, go talk to him. No guards, no fanfare. Then when he meet, goes and actually meets the Prophet, the Prophet says, hello, I want to talk to you. Okay, well, fine, accompany me. I'm walking back home, we can talk home. They start walking from where they met near the mosque in Medina to a location, probably that location was the Prophet's home, والسلام, at that point, a woman approaches the Prophet and says, O Prophet of God, I have a problem I want to talk to you about. You do, yes, a personal problem. Adi is surprised. The Prophet then talks to this woman who didn't have an appointment, didn't have a date, had a personal problem, whatever that personal problem was. But he talks with her on the side of the road for about half an hour. And he notices that she looks much better and much happier after the end of the conversation. Adi says... That's not how leaders that I know in Persia and Byzantia and even Arab chi tribal chiefs act. A woman doesn't just come and accost you and stop you and talk to you about her problems and you stand around talking to her. And what Adi reports as well is that no one looked at them. The Prophet was standing talking to this woman in the middle of Medina. No one looked at them. No one seemed to be surprised. No one seemed to even notice. Okay. Then they start walking again and they reach the Prophet's home. Adi notices that inside that home, there is only one cushion and that cushion is stuffed with straw. It's not stuffed with cotton. 
it, it, cushions that are stuffed with cotton are worth much more than cushions stuffed with straw. And a cushion stuffed with straw means you can't afford to buy the cushions stuffed with cotton. And he notices that inside the meeting area where the Prophet sat, there's only one cushion, and it's stuffed with straw. The Prophet picks the cushion and hands it over to Adi and says, sit on this. Adi tells the Prophet, no, you sit on it. The Prophet says, no, you're my guest, you sit on it. Adi says, but you're a prophet. You're the king, you're a chief, you sit on the cushion. The prophet says, no, but you're my guest. You sit on the cushion. So Adi sits on the cushion and the prophet sits on the floor. And Adi thinks, again, this is not how kings, this is not how royalty, this is not how leaders act. This man, in order to come talk to me, simply sits on the floor, giving his one and only cushion to his guest. Adi then is offered dates that have been sitting in water so that the water becomes sweet. And he notices that only one was presented. And he understands from the circumstance that this is all they can afford. They can't afford to have two, one for Adi and one for the Prophet. They can only afford to have one. And again, the Prophet insists that his guest, who's not a Muslim, who's not a Muslim, his guest be the one to drink that date drink. And Adi notices that there's nothing in the house. No food, no chickens roaming around, no ducks roaming around, no furniture, nothing. And they can't even afford to have two glasses of date juice. And the only one that they can afford is given to the guest who's sitting on the straw mat while the prophet is sitting on the floor. There's a conversation that takes place, and it's a long conversation I don't have time to get into. But after the end of the conversation, Adi is left so thoroughly impacted that he can't help but cry. This is a man of exceeding modesty. A man who doesn't seem to live on this earth, who exists on this earth, but his heart and mind belong to somewhere else. A man who is generous and compassionate, even to the stranger who doesn't share the Prophet's religion. 
This is, in short, a man of beauty. Eventually, Adi converts like his sister, Sufana. Now ask yourself the questions we pose to the past. Ask yourself what type of questions did I pose to the past in order to share with you these stories today. And ask yourself why is it that you most probably, the vast majority of you, have never heard of these stories. Ask yourself what type of questions your teachers posed to teach you what they taught you about your tradition, as opposed to what I am teaching you. And ask yourself, how qualified they were to ask the questions in the first place. وخاتم الأنبياء الأجمعين الموسى رحمة للعالمين I must shift gears to talk about something that I consider to be of obvious significance to humanity but especially to us Americans We understand that there is a pandemic in the world. But it blows my mind that as I speak, just yesterday, the United States reported 70,000 new cases and still the death rate is extremely high and nearly 140,000 plus more than 140,000 Americans have lost their lives. Must tell you that this fills me with dismay and shock. If someone would have told you before this pandemic started that Americans could have 140,000 people killed 140,000 citizens killed and failed to respond, would you have believed them? From the, my perspective as a Muslim, it fills me with anger and sorrow because we saw when up to 4,000 Americans were killed in 9-11, we spent billions of dollars 
billions of dollars invading two Muslim countries, killing thousands upon thousands of people. When we started the war on terror, our government told us that the life of any American is sacrosanct. And that if these Muslims murder a single American, we have the right to wage an open war to protect ourselves against the terrorists. And billions and billions of dollars were spent to wage this war. At least since 9-11, the Islamophones have been beating the drum beats, beating the drums over and over. Muslims are dangerous because they could kill Americans. And because of that danger, we are justified in spending billions and billions of dollars arming ourselves, training ourselves, invading countries all around the world, maintaining military bases all around the world, applying black ops operations all around the world. But yet, in this pandemic, we don't see anything coming close to what we spend on war being spent to defend Americans from an eminent present enemy. Or is it that the coronavirus must be Muslim before we react? It doesn't seem to matter that thousands of Americans are dying. We did not institute the type of effective policies that were instituted by New Zealand, for instance. We didn't even come close to what Britain did. We even fail when compared to Italy, Italy and Spain. We fail miserably even when compared to Australia, leave alone Canada. When you compare the type of resources spent by countries like New Zealand, Canada, Australia, England, leave alone most European countries, but even China, when compared to the resources that China spent in fighting the virus to what we've done, we're a miserable failure. So how am I supposed to take it? When since 2001, I've watched thousands of Muslims 
being slaughtered and killed. And I'm told that what justifies killing all these Muslims is the enormity of loss in 9-11. But then in 2020, as I see over 140,000 Americans killed, and yes, believe me, it's a matter of resources. If we spent the resources that New Zealand or Australia or Canada spent in fighting this pandemic, 140,000 Americans would not have died. It amazes me that in the country of human rights, that we have 70,000 infections a day. Just yesterday it was 70,000. And people are so casually talking about sending children back to school. Are you saying that we value human life so little that we're willing to risk the lives of our children just that they, so that the economy can make the rich richer? What type of America? What type of America do we want? But most importantly, Muslims must understand that from an Islamic perspective, to treat a pandemic as you are your on your own. If you get sick, well, hard luck, you're on your own. Is thoroughly un-Islamic. Let me be very clear. When the Prophet ﷺ, he didn't just teach us that if you are in a, in a town and there's a plague, or a pandemic, neither enter this town or leave this town. But when a man who was ill with a highly infectious disease wanted to have an audience with the Prophet to give him his bayah, the Prophet promptly ordered this man to return back home and said in other words I took your oath of allegiance remotely remote distance via Skype of their time but go back home your place is home understand that as a Muslim if you knowingly or negligently cause the infection of others so that you have reason to believe that you are carrying corona or through your misconduct because you were negligent when you were not supposed to be negligent. So in other words, you didn't care about wearing 
wearing um, a mask. What is it? A mask? Yeah, wearing a mask. You didn't maintain safe distances. You weren't around shaking hands or playing basketball or playing soccer and didn't take the necessary protective measures. And through your negligent behavior, you caused others to be infected. In Sharia, this is an assault. Whether intentional assault or non-intentional would define how much sin you incur. But rest assured, it is sin. Just because it, it strikes that. In fact, as a Muslim, everything in your religion, our religion, is the only religion that clearly instructed that if there is a pond that animals graze from, animals drink from that pond, you are not allowed to urinate in this pond. But only animals drink from the pond still. That's what our religion taught. You can't urinate. It is a sin to urinate where other human beings bathe or where animals graze. Ours is the only religion that said you don't have the right to contaminate water. You don't have the right to ignore the rights of others. So can you imagine what type of obligations are upon you as a Muslim in a pandemic? You don't have the right with 140,000 dead in the U.S. alone and half a million around the world to say, oh, I don't worry about it. Let Allah worry about it. No, you worry about it because that is your responsibility. And Allah will ask you when you meet Allah about whether you discharged your obligations. But this is, uh, is about our duties as a Muslim. But also as citizens, as Muslims who are citizens. The failure of our government and I don't care whether Republican or Democrat, that's not what I'm talking about. The failure of our government to protect its citizens, to invest the type of resources, the hypocrisy of our government on sending thousands of young kids to be killed or wounded or scarred for life, Leave alone to murder our Muslim compatriots around the world under the guise of fighting terrorism. Well, how about fighting the terrorism of a virus? Isn't that virus causing terror? 
to insist on the market standards and the values of the liberal free market in an age of pandemic is thoroughly classist and racist. Thoroughly racist. The response to this pandemic, if we are posing the right type of questions, the answers that come back are terrifying about the ailment of our American society. What ails our American society? I pray from all my heart that people wake up because when human beings are devalued to that extent, when human beings are devalued to the extent that 70,000 can be infected, or 60, 70,000, 50,000, whatever, infected every day, and hundreds of people killed every day, and life just goes on, it devalues all of us as citizens of this country. اللهم عفو عنا اللهم اغفر لنا اللهم ارحمنا اللهم تولنا يا علي عظيم وانصرنا وعز وانصر الاسلام وعز المسلمين يا رب العالمين الله grant us wisdom light and understanding grant us the strength of faith help us to become better muslims to always ask the right questions of the present and the past, to always be on the straight path, the path of Islam, the path of enlightenment and beauty. Ya Allah, Ya Ali, Ya Azim. Allah, Ya Amr, Al-Adli, Wa Al-Ihsani, Wa Ita'i, Wa Al-Nur. Al-Ahan, Al-Fashayim, Al-Mumkari, Wa Al-Bahi, Ya Ayrakum, Al-Nakum, Al-Aqim, Al-Salah.